Good morning. If you have a Bible this morning, let's open it up to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Seeing everybody fanning themselves, a little warm in here this morning. Don't worry, the hallways are 40 degrees, so you can transition between the two if you want to do that. James chapter 2, verse 14. James is a, uh, is a hodgepodge of theology. James seems to be jumping all over the place in his thoughts. Uh, scholars will call it the Proverbs of the New Testament. Uh, there's no seeming organizing flow of how James is talking about things. It's, it's almost like it's whatever occurs to him to talk about next. Uh, and while James is a fastball of obedience, of calling Christians to live Christians' lives, there's nothing particularly um, controversial about James except for these verses, which are some of the most controversial in the whole Bible. So James is pretty much straight down the middle, except for one part that could or could not be complete and total heresy. So that's what we talk about this morning. Uh, this, these verses we'll look at this morning, in fact, have been such a, uh, an issue that scholars will debate about. Martin Luther, who particularly had problems dealing with these verses, uh, is famous for having said, I will give my doctor's beret. When you got a doctorate in Luther's time, you got a beret. He said, which seems like a, a waste of time, but he said, I will give my doctor's beret to anyone who can figure this out. Um, so it's, it's, it's James chapter two, verse 14 and following, where James begins to make an argument about how a Christian should live in which he puts forward an idea. The problem with that idea being that it directly, seemingly, confronts and accuses as being heretical something Paul has put forward very plainly. If you wanna compare the two verses, they are James chapter two, verse 24, in Romans chapter three, verse 28. In James two twenty four, it says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Whereas Paul in Romans three says, for we hold that one is justifi justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, I don't know how good your reading comprehension is and I don't wanna judge, but it seems to me that those things are in direct confrontation with each other. They seem to be saying the exact opposite thing. And the, the, the answer to these things and to these questions as always comes down to what is the context of the whole of what each author is trying to say? Well, if we were to read the whole of the work, what, what is it going to teach us that this specific sentence is used in a specific way that means that there is a harmony between them? A larger look at the whole of the New Testament and the book of Acts, for example, shows us things like uh, in Acts 21, you'll see where Paul comes to Jerusalem, meets with James, this James, sets before him his gospel, and James says, yes, that is exactly the same thing I teach. Go and teach it to the Gentiles as much as you want. We're totally aligned. So we don't get to go, well, James said this and Paul said this and the Bible contradicts each other because we also have a place that shows us where James and Paul sit down together, tell each other, this is what I believe God is the gospel. This is what the Holy Spirit teaches me to teach. And James says, that's the same thing the Holy Spirit's teaching me to teach. We're totally aligned. Everything's good. 
So when we look at these passages and we look at them, we have to look at the whole and understand how they are going to be used and what is the specific point and how those things mesh together. Now, for the James verse, it's important to note and remember that when you are studying James, you are watching James constantly put forward ideas that are around one central issue, which is how then should we live? That's what James is about. Everything from controlling our mouths to submitting to people, to how we treat the poor, to how we don't think of anyone better than ourselves. This is all about how should we live? And so the question that James is going to be talking about in a larger scale that we have to remind ourselves when we read his passage on faith and works and justification is that his major point is not a dissection of the gospel, but rather an implication of how then believing this gospel should we live. And and, and a larger point, even above that, is that both Paul's and James's points about the gospel are desperately needed in our culture and time, okay? Because there's there's basically two groups that you could put forward uh, that, that are Christians that believe the gospel that need reminders of both of these men's takes uh, when it comes to the biblical authority of what they wrote. The first is the religious, right? The religious are people who begin to take a glance at and looking at and putting their faith in their own works above everything else. These are the person that says, I live a good Christian life, I live a good moral life, and because of that good moral life, I have God's approval. We call this legalism. Legalism being when we begin to think more highly of our works and our lives than the gospel themselves. Well, to the religious legalist, Paul comes in and says, no, your works are pointless before God. There are, you must be saved by grace alone. Grace meaning unmerited favor. God has to grant you salvation. You cannot earn it. You must be saved by grace, and that grace comes to us through faith alone. The second group is what we'll call the enculturated. The enculturated. And these are people who, while understanding Christ and the gospel, begin more and more to fall into the kind of our society's general view of God, which is that he is really concerned about our emotional health and how well we're doing and how where we're, well we're living. A, uh, a fast way of talking about that, where legalism is, you could call it MTD uh, or moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism is the default theology of our time. It's the idea, number one, moralistic. It looks at itself based on what it thinks is right or wrong and its attempt to live that life out. Right, So it allows you to define what's right and wrong, and then you judge yourself based on how well you live out what you think is right or wrong. Therapeutic, not not that there's anything wrong with therapy, or what it's talking about rather is that God's activity in our lives is judged on how well he makes us feel. There is a glut of devotional material that is totally devoted to making sure its readers understand how much God loves them. Is it true that God loves us? Yes. 
Does the Bible teach us God loves us? Yes. Is it the focus of every single part of what God does for you? Yes. Will it feel that way all the time? No. And an attempt to salve all our wounds becomes uh, an idea of, man, God so loves me, nothing wrong could ever happen to my life. And then when something wrong happens in your life, you're going, God must not love me. And lastly, deism. Deism is the idea that there is a God, but he's not that actively involved in our worlds. Kind of a God helps those who help themselves type of thinking. That's not in the Bible, by the way. This idea puts self dead center. It makes sure that the self is the most important thing about God, about ourselves. It radically, radically disciples us to the notion that our wants, our desires are the most important thing. It is the number one cultural maxim we are taught, that your children are taught, and that they are told is the pinnacle of their existence, living out who they are. Now, is there some truths in learning who we are and who God created us to be and living that out? There are some truths there, but when it becomes the whole of what we are, it becomes moralistic therapeutic deism. It relegates God to an outside perspective. And the great thing about the gospel is that the gospel, Paul's gospel says, not only does God love you, but he loves you enough to make sure you know you have no hope without him. And that all the reliance you put on yourself in, a, in, in trying to save yourself or make yourself acceptable to God is totally pointless the gospel will effectively come in and knock ourselves straight out of the way. And the second thing the gospel does when it knocks ourselves out of the way is it takes God and recenters us on him and expands our vision of him to where God becomes bigger than we ever were and we find our rightful place oriented in him. That he was always meant to be bigger than we are, more important than we are that we will find ourselves in him. This is where Paul speaks to the Greeks and he says, uh, it's in him we live and move and have our being. Uh, Augustine, the great Christian theologian, will say our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. We are creatures created for the creator and we'll find no place without that. But the interesting thing about the enculturated church and the way the gospel can impact it is that Paul will come in and go, you can't rely on yourself. You must rely totally on God. And then James will come right behind it and say, but you have to mean it. You see, our culture being still a vestige of enculturated Christianity desperately needs Paul's gospel to destroy legalism, but it also needs heavy doses of James that teaches it. Yes, it is faith that saves you, but it's a faith you have to mean. You have to mean it. So let's take a look at the James text and walk it out and watch his argument. Beginning in James chapter two, verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Now, in order to understand the text, understand when he says works, he means any action done that is morally credible. 
He is saying when we do good things, when we do the things God requires of us, that's what a work is. And so James is is setting up an idea of saying, if you say that you believe in God and you believe in Jesus, but nothing in your life looks like it, that's the, this is what the argument is. He's saying, you can say, I believe in Jesus, I believe in the resurrection, I believe in all these things, but nothing in my life looks like I've actually believed those things. That's what he's saying. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In verse 18, he says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. The idea that James wants to take apart is a vision of bogus belief. Now understand, the word faith in the New Testament is the same word that is sometimes translated belief. And so whenever you see faith and belief, those are the same Greek words, usually just translated different ways to make it more palatable to the English speaker to understand. But they're the same concept. James is trying to take apart a notion that nowadays we call easy believism, which is the idea that if I agree with the correct formations of theology, I must be saved. James is trying to say that this faith will have an impact in how we live. It will have an impact in the way we walk out our days. It has to. Now, Martin Luther, as I told you, did not like the book of James. He didn't like it at all because he was in a huge fight with the Catholic church about this idea. He was teaching uh, that we are saved by faith alone. And the Catholic Church was saying, no, we're not. And I'm not gonna get into the Protestant Catholic thing because I'm not getting into the Protestant Catholic thing. I'm just talking about Martin Luther. So Martin Luther called the, the, the epistle of James, he called it the epistle of straw uh, because he didn't like it. And then the next year, he, he, he took that out. He said, I apologize for that. He said, I love the book of James because it makes me remember that God's law has a meaning. It's how I have to live. And he said, faith is a living thing that cannot be restless. Faith is a living thing that must have an activity in the person who claims its life. He says, we are not saved by works. That's Paul's position. But if there be no works, there is something dead in the person's faith. See, we have been raised for the most part, if you're from the South here, in a church culture that teaches, if you say a sinner's prayer, you will be saved. Is that true? That is true. It's 100% true because it's faith that saves. What gets confusing sometimes is that if you say a sinner's prayer, you have to mean it. 
It has to be a faith and a way you are now putting your belief into who God is that will impact the way you live your life. Does that mean we're perfect? Of course not. That's, that's silliness. But a person who says, I've accepted Jesus when I was six and then lived out a murder spree for 85 years and died, praise Jesus, I'm saved. That person should have no confidence that they ever had faith in Christ. What they actually had was a memory enough to recite some words. Now, James is gonna take this idea. This is called a creedal confession. A creedal confession is when you recite a central part of your faith. In our case, it would be, I know I'm a sinner. I know that Jesus died for my sins. Come be my Lord, which is a key part in what James is actually talking about and save me. If only there were a creedal confession that James could reference to prove his point. Oh yes, there is. It's the next verse. Okay. In James chapter two, it may appear just a random statement. It is the very heart of what he's trying to teach. Now remember, James, and I'm gonna put this in our terms, is the pastor of First Baptist Jerusalem, okay? James lives in Jerusalem. James goes to the temple and teaches Christianity. That is not popular, right? Every day, he is taking his life in his hands to go and teach about Christ. So much so that when they decide, you know what? I don't like his preaching. They take him to the top of the temple and threw him off of it to martyr him. So watch James take the religion around him and prove his point. In James 2.19, he says this. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, what has that got to do with anything? At the dead center, the absolute dead center of the Jewish religion and its daily way you daily live it out is the recitation of a prayer called the Shema. An Orthodox Jew will start his morning prayers, it's the centerpiece of their morning prayers, and it's the centerpiece of their evening prayers. In fact, the Shema is so important that the Orthodox Jew, when they put their kids into bed and then let them get up for 17 glasses of water and go to the bathroom 108 times and then go find the one toy they can't sleep without that's that big in your house somewhere. I'm sorry, I'm working on my issues. <laughs> when they knew their kid was finally ready to actually get in the bed and go to bed, they would have their children say the Shema so the last words their child spoke before they went to sleep was Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the last word a Jewish child was to say before they went to sleep. This is how crucial and central to the Jewish understanding of religion was. This, to this day, it's a centerpiece of, of Jewish prayer. When they pray the Shema, Jews will cover their eyes. Orthodox Jews will cover their eyes with the idea being when you say this part, you are not to be distracted in any way. You are to totally cover your face so that you are focusing on, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. All right? Dead center 
of a Jewish religious experience. And James takes that and turns it. You say, well, if it's that important, how come Jesus, we never saw Jesus say it? Well, we did hear Jesus say it. As a matter of fact, you have heard and probably quoted a dozen times the place where Jesus says it. Teachers come to Jesus and they try to trap him and they ask him, what's the greatest commandment? What is the answer? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. You remember that? How he actually starts his answer uh, in Mark 12, 28 is when the scribes came to him, heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, said to them, which commandment is the most important at all? And Jesus answered him. The most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord, your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's how Jesus answered. Why? Because it's that center. So when James comes back around and is teaching these Jewish Christians uh, and, and anyone who wants to debate Christianity, he's taking the very centerpiece of that. He's saying, you believe God is one. You're right. I'm a good Jew. I believe every part of that. I know every single part of that. I believe it. I, t- I pray it in the morning. I pray it at night. I teach my children to say it right before they go to sleep so that there's no, deci- there's no, no one could charge me with not believing this. And then James goes, good, because devils believe that. And they shudder. In other words, stating things that are true doesn't mean that your life is oriented around those things. Just because you say them out loud just means you're agreeing with fact. You know, you can say gravity will cause me to fall off a cliff, but if you go jump off a cliff, you didn't actually believe it. When he's saying you can quote the Shema all you want, but even the devil believes that. There has to be something more to that confession than just the recitation of fact. Well, saying, I believe I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus was God's gift to the world to take my sins on the cross, to die, to rise on the third day. That if I confess my sins and put my faith in him, I will be saved. That's just the recitation of facts. That's all it is. You can say that all day. The demons believe those things. The distinction is in the word believe and faith. If you believe those things and your life then changes or orients itself around those statements of fact, then you truly show you believe them. The best way for me to sum this up, this is from a a book I read and I cannot remember the guy's name. This is not me. This is Anderson, his last name, and I cannot think of the the author's name and I apologize. There is no creedal confession in Christianity without corresponding Christian conduct that can save either demon, man or demon is his reflection here. Our faith has to mean something. It has to make our lives in some way oriented to the propositions it has proposed. Faith without works is dead because works are how faith lives. Do the works justify us? No, they do not. Paul makes this clear. Faith justifies us but a faith that justifies us manifests itself by a life oriented around the things of God. 
Perfectly? Oh, no. Obviously? Yes. James continues in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. The interesting point in this is if you looked at the Paul chapter and the James chapter, both of them proved their points by pointing back to Abraham, the centerpiece of both faiths, saying, you will never know that Abraham actually trusted God until he ties up Isaac on that sacrificial altar. That's when you know his faith was real. Is, does anybody else in the New Testament teach this kind of thing? Yeah, Peter does, for example. In 1 Peter, Peter's talking about going through trials, having to face very hard things in our lives. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, of more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying, your faith has to be proven genuine. How is faith proven genuine? Through trials. Trials show how you navigate them. What's in your heart? What comes out of the cup when you're bumped? Faith has to be proven genuine. Now, I don't want you walking out of here thinking, so I've got to get my stuff together and I got to start doing better and I got to get on it because then you're dangerously close to putting your faith in your actions rather than in Christ. Jesus said things like faith like a mustard seed. That's little bitty. A little bit of genuine faith will save you because it's not your works, it's your faith. But that faith, that mustard seed of work, that mustard seed of faith, that little bitty kernel of I really believe this will begin to grow. Just like the smallest seed in the ground. It may take two winters, but it's gonna come up. You're gonna see it. It has to be real. So when James comes back, in verse 24, it says, you see a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And you compare it to Paul, in which he says, well, we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The thing to focus here on is when they say things like alone. He's saying faith that is alive is never alone. When Paul says we're just by faith apart from the works of the law, he's saying a person using a legal argument, God, I did all the things you said I was supposed to do. You have to save me. No, I don't. Because I'll prove you never did anything of the law. James and Paul are not in, in conflict with one another. They are talking about different things. Paul is talking about how the gospel operates in the spiritual realm in our lives. James is talking about what does the gospel look like with boots on the ground, right? Paul is making an argument from the theology and the philosophy of salvation by grace. <clears throat> James is talking about, on Thursday, my life looked like this, right? They are not saying opposite things. They're talking about opposite theaters. And in those different places, they have to use language in certain ways. 
The point of both is that we have to believe that Christ is our salvation. And if we believe that, it will manifest itself. John Calvin, reconciling these, says, Paul says, we are justified by faith without the help of the works of the law. While James says, but no one should oppose, they have a faith that saves without the works that show its veracity, its truthfulness. The larger point is, if we say we believe these things, we must live these things. This is the Christ call. Let me pray for us. I have two quick announcements and then we'll be dismissed. Let me pray for you. Just stay seated and two quick announcements will be done. Our Father in God, we praise you that you save us by grace through faith because of Christ's offering of himself on the cross. It is a salvation we cannot earn or buy. As your word says, it is a gift to us. But your word also teaches us that if we actually open the gift, we've got to take it out of the box and play with it in the yard. That there's going to be a reaction, a reality to the opening of that gift. That our lives have to show the truth of what we believe. And the reality is our, our, our lives will show the realities of what we believe. And always, Father, let us be a glory to the name of Jesus through confessing that it is his life and death alone that saves me and through saying, because of those beliefs, I will live a life focused on him. You call us to serve in a million different ways, but in all the ways, let us give thanks to Jesus, our King. It's in his name we pray, amen.